came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. Radio waves. brings the news. Arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Tuesday the 30th of March 2021. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers and he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So right now, we cross over to Adelaide in Australia and welcome Ian with his April Sky Guide. Enjoy. Hello, Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. Welcome. We've just had the equinox. And can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the month of April? There's lots of things up in the southern sky for the month of April. Sadly, like our previous month, most of it's still in the morning skies and still requires you to be up early. But of course, as we're past equinox and the skies are getting darker earlier and the sun is rising later, you don't have to get up quite so early in the morning to see interesting things. Start off with the moon. The last quarter moon is on the end of daylight savings in Australia. So we'll all go back to having the same notional times across the time zones. This is the same night as last quarter on April the 4th. Then on April the 12th, we've got a new moon, which is an excellent time for seeing the constellations. Then on April the 20th, you've got the first quarter moon. And on April the 27th, it's the full moon. Now, on April the 28th, we have an apogee moon. So this occurs at 1am in the morning. So it's directly after the full moon. And to many people, it'll be still a full moon when this occurs. And having the perigee full moon, so close to the full moon, 
people have been calling this a supermoon. Again, for most people, unless you've been paying very close attention to the mini moons earlier in the year or later in the year, it may be a bit difficult to tell the difference between this perigee moon and the average moon. But if you've got a good memory for uh, moons, uh, you should you could uh, try and see it. Certainly, if you're doing astrophotography, you can clearly tell the difference between perigee moons and an apogee moon. Like my perigee moon will be better than this one, but this is still pretty good. So if you're going to be up about midnight 1am on the 27th to uh, 28th, and you've got your photography uh, equipment with you, it's well worth taking a, a photograph of this perigee moon and comparing it with photographs of apogee moons later on in the year. So let's move on to the evening sky. So the only planetary action that's happening in the evening sky is Mars. Now, Mars is hanging on low in the northwestern sky. It's faded considerably. It is now dimmer than Aldebaran, Betelgeuse, and other bright stars nearby, but still quite distinctive. Uh, it's going to continue to dim, but its little red spark is still keeping on, keeping on. It's best seen around about an hour and a half after sunset, and after that it's getting a bit low towards the horizon and more difficult to see. Now, at the moment, Mars is tracking down the horns of the bull at the beginning of the month. And when we first see it, it starts almost halfway between uh, Aldebaran, the bright red star which forms the eye of the bull, and Elnath, the bright star that forms the tip of one of the horns. Mars will continue to move uh, uh, along the horns, and on the 13th, Mars is almost directly between Elnath and Zeta Tauri, which forms the tip of the other horn of the bull. Then Mars is close to the crescent moon on the 17th, which will look very nice. It's not spectacularly close, but it is pleasantly close enough to uh, make a, a nice viewing in the evening and some a nice wide-angle astrophotography. And then on the 27th, Mars passes close to the uh, open cluster M35. Although M35 has a number of stars in it that are potentially uh, visible to the unaided eye under dark skies, if you're in the suburbs and because it's relatively low to the horizon when Mars passes by, you're better off watching this with binoculars. It'll look quite nice through binoculars. Yep. That's the planetary positions in the evening sky. Let's turn to the morning sky. Now, still Venus is too close to the sun and it won't be visible until it returns to the evening sky in May. But Saturn and Jupiter are very prominent in the morning sky and will continue to get easier and easier to see. At the start of the month, Saturn, Jupiter and Mercury form a line in the sky, which you can easily see an hour before sunrise. But as the month goes on, Mercury gets lower and lower to the horizon, while Jupiter and Saturn get higher and higher. And by the 11th, it's last hurrah, where the thin crescent moon is just above Mercury. But it's deep in twilight, so you'd have to look at an, half an hour before sunrise with a level flat horizon in order to see Mercury and the thin line of the, of the, of the almost new uh, moon together low in the twilight. And you probably need binoculars to see both of them. As I said, Saturn and Jupiter. Saturn is above Jupiter. They are rising higher and higher. And 
before Mercury's swan song, on the 6th, 7th and 8th, you have a nice lineup of the crescent moon, Saturn and Jupiter. So on the 6th, you've got crescent moon, Saturn and Jupiter in a line. Then on the 7th, the crescent moon is between Saturn and Jupiter. And finally on the 8th, the thin crescent moon is, is uh, below Jupiter. Again, they're not spectacularly close, but they will look very nice in the early morning. That sounds really lovely. It will be really lovely. Um, let's see. Saturn, Jupiter, and uh, Moon lineup will be very easy to see uh, an hour and a half before sunrise when the sky is uh, really dark. So, so it'll be a very good sky watching. Now, let's turn to the stars. Our friend uh, Orion, the hunter, has dominated our skies for past months and it's now setting in the west. But Orion's nemesis, Scorpius, the scorpion is now rising in the east. So, you'll be able to see. You've got a nice uh, level horizon and you're looking at the, at the beginning of the month at around about 11 o'clock. You'll be able to see Orion just above the western horizon and Scorpius rising just above the eastern horizon. So that's quite a nice sight to see. But now is also a, a good time to uh, look at the constellation of the Emu. Now, the Emu is one of the indigenous Australian constellations and it's made up of dark constellations. That is, it's made up almost entirely of dark dust lanes. Now, in the Northern Hemisphere, all our constellations are made up of bright stars, but dark constellations are unique to the Southern Hemisphere. For example, in South America, they have the constellation of the Tinamu, which is a relatively bit new, and two llamas. And the Tinamu and the two llamas make up the constellation Indigenous Australians call the Emu. Now, from our point of view, from our uh, uh, European traditions. The emu consists of the coal sack, the dark dust cloud that uh, nestles in the crook of the Southern Cross, and this forms the head of the emu. Then there's a dark a dust lane that forms, uh, that falls down below the pointers and runs down to the curl of the stars that forms the body of Scorpio. The, that dark dust lane is the neck of the emu and the curl of the body of Scorpio forms the wings. And then a second dark dust lane forms below uh, this, which is the lower body and legs of the, of the emu. Now, in April, you'll be easily able to see the head, uh, neck and body, but the lower body and uh, legs maybe you won't see until much later in the month and probably best in, in May. So uh, being made of dark dust lanes, it's very hard to see uh, the emu in the city. However, if you're out in the countryside, you can easily see it. And once you spot it, you'll wonder why you've never seen it before. However, in the suburbs where a lot of us live, if you let your eyes adapt for several minutes, you can make it out. And I've regularly seen the emu from my suburban home on the outskirts, 15 kilometres from the centre of Adelaide. It might be a, you need, might need to be a bit further out from Melbourne and Sydney, but you should be able to see it from the suburbs of Brisbane or the outer suburbs of those two big cities and the outer suburbs of Perth quite nicely. Again, you have to let your eyes adapt, uh, but once you've let your eyes adapt, you can see the Milky Way faintly and you should be able to see the dark, the dust clouds in the Milky Way. Uh, it'll be uh, faint and uh, faint against the opalescence, but still visible. So this month, the emu is best seen from about 10.30 to 11 p.m. Around about midnight, it'll be higher and you'll be able to see the uh, lower legs of the emu. 
Of course, if you're up uh, for the um, perigee moon uh, on the uh, uh, morning of the 28th at 1, p at 1 a.m., uh, you won't see the union either because the moonlight will brown it out. Uh, aside from the emu, uh, we've still got Omega Tauri, in my opinion, one of the best globular clusters in the sky. We talked about this last month, and it's getting higher in the sky, and so it's a lot easier to see. And if you're looking for the emu at 11 p.m., the Omega Centauri get your binoculars out, and the pointers and the Southern Cross, which are defining the head of the emu, if you they the, the the top pointer and the uh, the bright star in the Southern Cross form the base of a triangle, which you can use to go out by about the uh, a hand span and a half to find Omega Centauri, which will be very easily visible in binoculars. Very good. Yeah, and so that should keep you occupied for both planets and stars in the morning and uh, at the evening. Fantastic, Ian. Now, can you tell us, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? I most certainly do. Now, as we've noted, Mars is still persevering in our sky and on the surface of Mars, Perseverance is preparing to launch uh, Ingenuity, the Mars helicopter. Yep. And it will, in fact, be uh, launched in early April. Now, while that will be gaining a lot of attention, Mars's dust is much in the news, but not from the planet-encircling dust storms it's famous for, but from a most unexpected source. And this is the zodiacal light. Now, the zodiacal light is a faint glow visible in the night sky in the direction of the sun. As I said, it's faint, it's diffuse, and it's a roughly triangular white glow uh, that can be visible after sunset and before dawn, appearing to extend from the sun's direction along the zodiac, which is why it's called the zodiacal light. It's scattered by interplanetary dust, and it's best seen during twilight after sunset in the spring and before sunrise in the autumn. At this time, the zodiac is at a very steep angle to the horizon, so it's virtually straight up and down. So it's, it's much easier to see this glow uh, when it's not uh, uh, too close to the, to the horizon. For us in Australia, April is a good time to look for the uh, zodiacal glow in the, in the uh, morning skies. Of course, it is very faint and moonlight and, and light pollution outshine it. So you're best looking for the zodiacal glow uh, in the countryside and the Easter holidays and soon the school holidays will be coming up. So this will be a very good time if you feel like uh, getting up early in the morning to track Jupiter and Saturn and Mercury to look for the zodiacal glow. Cool. Uh, now, the dust that forms the zodiacal light has long been thought to come from asteroids or comets. Indeed, the, the um, spectral characteristics of the uh, dust suggest that it's cometary dust, looking like it's sort of all that uh, rather uh, fluffy, uh, fragile dust that comets are famous for. But results that have challenged this concept have come from a very surprising source, the Juno probe now orbiting Jupiter. Now, on its way to Jupiter, Juno used a star tracker camera to track the stars to navigate to Jupiter. 
And as I was watching the stars through the star tracker camera, they caught many mysterious streaks of light. And a detailed analysis showed that they were sub-millimeter pieces of debris stripped off the solar panels of the spacecraft as dust grains slammed into the solar arrays. Now, they're slamming in at a few kilometers per second, so even a tiny speck of dust can cause a fair bit of damage. And the camera was able to identify thousands of these unidentifiable objects, which resulted as uh, uh, debris from uh, dust impacts. And as a result, they were able to calculate not only the density of the dust that Juno was traveling through, but also uh, the orbit. So what they were able to do was first time reconstruct how much zodiacal dust there was at various distances from the sun. So one of the things that they discovered was that zodiacal dust particles orbit the sun on circular track, which is quite unusual. If they were a cometary or asteroidal debris, they would expect to have more elliptical tracks because, after all, the comets and, and asteroids tend to have elliptical elongated orbits rather than the nearly circular orbits you see for planets. And they also uh, found that the dust had a very strict limit. There was no dust outside the 4 to 1 orbital resonance with Jupiter. And so there was lots inside, but, but uh, virtually none outside of it. Now this resonance is uh, located a bit over two point, a bit under two point one astronomical units from the sun, where an orbit will complete four objects, where an object rather than where an object will complete four orbits in the same time it takes Jupiter to revolve around the sun just once. Again, if we were expecting that dust to come from asteroids or comets, you wouldn't really be expecting it to be trapped in this circular donut in this resonance. So what they started doing was looking for another source. And so uh, what they did was to make models and it suggested that if you had dust uh, originating from Mars, it uh, neatly reproduced the uh, dust features, not only the uh, resonance and the density, but also there's um, bands in the dust that were discovered by the uh, by IRAS, the Infrared Astronomical Satellite, back in the 1980s, and they were able to reproduce that as well. So all their data is pointing to the, uh, to the fact that the zodiacal light originates from Mars. Now, this is quite big news, but there's also a big problem. How does the dust get from Mars? Now, we've seen those incredible dust storms on Mars, but in general, the marsh and dust stays on Mars. And it's, it's not uh, just a one-off event. It has to, this, there has to be a significant source of Martian dust for millions of years to create the density of dust we see in the zodiacal light. So there's no good explanation for that. They considered uh, ejection from uh, Phobos instead, but even then, it's, it's really hard to describe or, or to understand how that amount of dust could be coming from Phobos uh, and not be very obvious about it. 
So they may have solved one uh, one uh, mystery, where in fact does the dust from the zodiacal light come from? But they've created uh, another mystery: is that how does the dust get off Mars into interplanetary space in the first place? And we have to think of mechanisms, plausible mechanisms for this to happen. So I suspect there'll be a lot more uh, studies going on in the near future. And of course, now we realise that in the past we've used dedicated uh, dust collectors in order to collect uh, interplanetary dust and try and get a handle on it. Uh, but now we can, those interplanetary dust collectors tended to be re uh, relatively small, uh, but probes with giant uh, solar uh, panels can now effectively collect through the debris generating uh, impacts, now effectively uh, collect and study in, uh, interplanetary dust uh, in much more detail uh, than uh, previously. So if you're up early in the morning uh, uh, and uh, somewhere dark, if you're out camping for Easter or for the school holidays, and you see the, the that faint uh, triangular cone of light visible in the uh, early morning, uh, you can contemplate that uh, that uh, dust may have come from the red planet Mars. And you're looking at an answer and at a mystery at the same time. Wow, another great example of why you should get up early in the morning and also why whenever science answers one question, it automatically poses dozens of more questions. Exactly, exactly. It's a good example of the dictum that one of the greatest moments in science are not accompanied by Eureka, but hmm, that's funny. <laughs> Yes, um, serendipity rules. Indeed, serendipity indeed rules. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been great speaking with you again and fantastic. April is a wonderful month, so step outside and look up. Indeed, it was fantastic to be able to share this with you and uh, I hope everyone can see some really cool things in the sky. Thanks very much, Ian. Good night. Thank you very much, Brendan. You have a good night and uh, dark skies when you need them. See ya. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.